Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now, don't lie to them like you did last week. Look at them and say, it's good to see you. Come on, good to see you. Now, look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like, you don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Three of you think that. Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, so turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. And if you're new to the Scriptures, you can start in the right and turn left. You'll find it much faster. Or you can go two-thirds of the way through. You'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in John chapter 8. If you're watching on the online campus, we're so glad that you've joined us. You'll see a little Bible tab there. You just click, click on that just outside of the chat, and you'll be able to follow along there. If there's ever sermon notes, there's a note um, tab there. Uh, fill out that connect card. Let us know that you're watching and joining us. We're so glad that you're gathered with us. And we, don't, we don't really care if you're gathering online or in person. The important part is that you gather. Amen? Uh, the idea of the word church in the Greek is this word ekklesia, which literally means the gathering of the people of God. So the church is not a building you go to. It's a group of people that you meet with. Amen? And so the point of the church is to gather. Do you believe that? Somebody say amen to that. <clears throat> so look in the Gospel of John, starting in verse Eight. We're going to read some passages here. I'm going to try uh, to uh, take the lengthy sermon that I preached last service and condense, cut some stuff a little short, and try to give us uh, the best uh, kind of takeaway that we can from the text in the time that we have. And so be praying for me that I'm able to do that and you get lunch on time. And uh, so, hey, look at John chapter 8, starting in verse... Uh, one. And what you'll see is that it combines uh, 753 and verse 1, 81. Uh, I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, it says, they went each to his own house, Jesus, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning and he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now watch what verse 6 says. This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. What is that charge? We're going we're to look at that in just a moment. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, or in the dirt. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
at once, and once more he bent down and wrote into the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? One translation would say, Where are your accusers? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank you for this famous passage, this story that's been going viral for thousands of years. I pray that you would let us look beyond the surface and look to the person of Jesus. And what does this text tell us about the Christ, the Son of God? And that through this, we may believe that you are, you are who you say you are and you're able to do what the Scriptures say that you can do. I pray that everything we say and everything we do would bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, <coughs> amen. What you'll see very quick, I want to just address this, and I probably took a little too much time in the first service on this particular part of it. What you'll see in some of your translations, if you got an ESV uh, specifically, and maybe in the Blue Bibles, if you got one of those, what you'll see is that there's a little tag above the start of chapter 8 that says the earliest manuscript manuscripts do not include and then it brings this passage how many of you have a bible that has that little tag in it a few of you let me explain to you what that means you may quickly go what do you what do you mean some manuscripts do not include this particular passage now by manuscript what they mean are copies of the original text and so i can just tell you right now that there is no conspiracy to leave out part of the scriptures in order that we may believe different things okay are you with me somebody say amen to that okay so let me tell you what uh the uh translators of your translation and my translation are trying to do to give us confidence in that we can know what we are reading is accurate to what the biblical authors left for us to read. So here's what happens in what we call textual criticism. And so we do this in academia when it comes to all ancient literature that we are wanting to look and translate into modern language and then study what we believe is the original contents of a particular document. And I can tell you that the, the documents of the New Testament are considered one of, one of, if not the most accurate of any type of literature in all of antiquity. Now that does not give credence to its truthfulness. We are left with logic and reason and, and our evidence to evaluate what's the contents of the New Testament and decide whether or not it is truthful. Are you with me? Somebody say amen to that. We're going to grind through this one today. Amen. And so uh, we are left with looking at the documents and deciding for ourselves with the evidence that we have is what the New Testament claims. Is it accurate? Now what we can know for certain is that what we are reading today is accurate to what the biblical authors left for us. Now let me give you an example of how we know that. How many of you remember in uh, English class your study of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey? Do you remember that? 
Man, some of you are farther removed from that than others, but try to bear with me. Uh, they've made several movies uh, on this, and they're still making movies that have some type of uh, homage to Homer's Iliad and the o Odyssey. If you are a fan of O Brother, Where Art Thou? That is the story. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And, and so then what we know for certain in academia is that what Homer wrote we have the copies of what Homer wrote, and we can be confident that these copies are accurate to what he originally wrote. Now, let me give you some details about this particular document that is in contrast to the New Testament. And so in our studies in school, we learn these stories, we study these stories, and we study them with confidence. Yet we have only copies of what Homer wrote, just like the New Testament. We do not have the original documents. And you might say, oh, no, and I say, praise be to God our Father, right? Because if we had those original documents, we would lock them in a vault, and we would worship them, and no one would ever get to read them. Somebody say amen to that, because that's what we do. We tend to memorialize things and uh, make monuments to things rather than actually carry out the practices of the content. Somebody say amen. To that and so what we do not have the original documents all we have are copies and maybe you think that's unique to the New Testament but that is not that is exactly the case with Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey which is considered one of the most accurate documents that we have in antiquity and yet we only have copies and how we look at the accuracy is the date from which we perceive Homer to have written the original documents to the first dated copies that we have have. Now, the gap between Homer writing uh, these documents and the first ever copies are about 1,200 years. Can you remember back that far? Right? Uh, 1,200 years, and we only have a few of these copies, anywhere from half a dozen to a dozen of these copies. Now, contrast this with the New Testament. In the, with the uh, documents of the New Testament, we have a gap when the King James Version of the Bible, remember that? The ye, ye, though, and those. And uh, I stopped reading Shakespeare, so I got rid of mine. And so, uh, uh, but it's one of the most prolific and fantastic works of literature in all of the history of the world. You should be thankful for the King James Version of the Bible. Amen? But we do not say that we are King James only, and that's the documents, because we, have, uh, we use textual criticism to actually be more accurate with what we have and in modern language. But when the, new, when the King James Version of the Bible was written, it was translated from copies that we have dating to about 80 to 120 Years Now, which one's bigger? Let's play a game. 1,200 or 120. See, there is a much shorter gap. You may say that's a long time, yet we consider Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey to be very accurate. And then when we get to the New Testament, we can be confident that it is even more accurate than documents like that. And not do we have uh, just a few copies. Here's what's happening. Have you, have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Anyone ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? This great 
great discovery, gave us not just a few, we already had lots, and then we've discovered hundreds of manuscripts. Not merely a dozen, hundreds. Let's play a game. Which one's bigger? And yet we have hundreds of these manuscripts and the Dead Sea Scrolls gave us documents that weren't just dated 80 to 120 years. Actually, we discovered documents that would get us closer to a generation, more like 40 to 60 years, which gap is smaller. And so here's what we do, not just with biblical text. We then translate this. And how do we translate that? What we do is we line up all of the copies. Why would there be so many copies of the Bible? Because people believed it to be true and they wanted everyone to hear it. Somebody say amen to that. And so if you had a copy, I would jot my part down, but maybe it was in a hurry. Maybe it was quick. Maybe I left some out. What I would do if I was going to try to find the most accurate version of what was left, I would line them all up and draw a line straight through what they all say. And that is how we get the translation of our Bible. Someone say, thanks, Pastor, for explaining all that to me. Uh, and so we can be confident that what we have. So why is it that this is left here? In the King James Version of the Bible, we do not have tags like this that say the earliest. But if you were to read the New King, New King James Version of the Bible, you would actually have both, and they would put a tag beside it. And you would get the ancient uh, language and some of the more poetic types style of writing when you read the New King, King James. Then you get to the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, and that is a word for word. Sometimes you'll read it and it feels choppy. That's because they're trying to translate word for word, and yet, as you know, if many of you are bilingual, there are not always word for word ways to translate language to language, let alone ancient languages, with a gap of 2,000 years. Are you still with me? <laughs> And so then there's versions like the NIV book of the Bible, which is thought for thought, which they take one line of the scripture and go, what was the biblical author's thought here? And how can I write that in a way that communicates the thought? Then you get to things that aren't really translations. They're more paraphrases and translations like the new living version of the Bible. And what it does is the parts that don't seem to line up, they kind of smooth it out for public reading. But what we can know as we collectively look at the versions of the Bible we have, we begin to know what was written in the ancient text from the Bible says that God gives us teachers to as gifts to the church, scholars and people who would study ancient language. We can know with confidence that what we are reading was left there for us by the authors of scriptures that we might wrestle with, be encouraged by, be convicted from, and and ultimately transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus as we begin to look into this scripture that we know without a shadow of doubt from all that we have that this book is 100% all about Jesus. That was pretty good. Thank you. Uh, somebody say amen to that. All right, I'm gonna, I, I know there's a little more new, new school. My last service is the old school, so they're like, yeah, amen. I have to, okay, calm down. And you guys, I'm like, are you still here, right? And, uh, and so uh, make sure this is a uh, dialogue, not just a monologue. Somebody say amen. And so um, here's what the implications of this passage. What you read is that the earliest manuscript, so it leaves us there, says that it does not include it, yet your Bible includes it. So how did something like this happen? So potentially when they were translating it out, what happened is, is there's this one copy, or maybe it was pasted on at one time, taped 
two, they go, hey, this got mixed up with other parts. Some people believe that this passage should come in the book of Luke. And the reason why is because the advanced Greek that it is written in is much different than the rest of the book of John. John was a common young person who would have learned Greek as a second language. Luke was Greek, so it was his first language. He was also a physician. And so you can see the contrast in this particular passage that would merit some textual criticism to go, who wrote this? Here's what we know is that it is included. It stood the test of time. The church has rallied around it. And you've probably heard this story as one of the most famous stories in human history. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Or maybe you've heard it in a, in a tagline that says, hey, don't throw stones. Ye, ye, ye. Remember, see, we all tend to quote Shakespeare, right? Uh, ye without sin cast the first Stone, And so what we can know is that maybe it was a sermon that John preached. Maybe someone added that to it. They wrote it down. Maybe it was a part of the oral tradition. But by the grace of God, it's been going viral for thousands of years. And it pierces the heart of us. And we have to wrestle with what it says about Jesus. Amen? Because at first glance, when you read stuff like this, and we've been talking about this, you can begin to project yourself into the text, and I guarantee I know which character you are. We will begin to project ourselves into the text, and we will miss what it's actually saying about Jesus. So we start with the premise that John is writing, and we talked about this, that he writes in John 20 and 31, that he says, I write these things that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Or in other words, this story is is not primarily about you, and that's good news. Somebody say amen to that. This is about Jesus. But if you're not careful, you will read this fantastic story that pulls the harsh strings, and you will begin to take the narrative of the text, and you will apply it to your situation or someone else's situation, and you will begin to make dogma and doctrine when the passage is deeper than what's at the surface. And what leads me to believe that is what, they, what it says in verse 6, which they said this to test him, that they may bring some charge against him. See, even the Pharisees and the scribes know that this isn't really about this woman or her sinfulness that she's at. It doesn't even have to do with what happens at the end of the story. This is all about trying to trap Jesus. They are coming there in order for someone to help them decide who is right in regards to this situation. In order, I don't want to be the I don't be the dad who always uh, tells stories about his kids. And so, uh, let me tell you about my van. And uh, so, so uh, I don't want to do that. But uh, uh, so, so I bought this van, and, and it's my dream van. And I had to fly to Florida to buy this van because you know California's crazy. And, and so uh, I found this in January. My dad and I we bought a hundred dollar ticket to Tampa, Florida. We prayed with Tom Brady. You know how that worked out. And, and, and then we drove three days across the country. And maybe you've heard this story. I referenced it a little 
But last week, but I told this story when we first happened, is on the second day, my dad and I were in nowhere, Louisiana. You can look that up on a map. Nowhere, Louisiana. And they had these things in the south all over the place because the ultimate goal for us is, is to build the back of this Sprinter van into a camper van so that we can drive across the country because, you know, flying is crazy, let alone with four children. That's right. I said four. It's a nightmare, friend. And so the ultimate goal is we have family back in Kentucky. We're going to drive across the country, maybe spend some nights in the van with four kids. I know that sounds like a nightmare, but it's not flying. And so uh, we, I decided on the second day, we're going to look up these things called camping worlds. Have you seen this? Glory to God, like Walmart for camping. Thank you, Marcus Lemonis, right? And so uh, we go into camping world in nowhere, Louisiana, after the second day having lunch, and we pull into a pretty much empty parking lot, and we pull into one spot space, leaving one space between the curb. And then uh, because, um, you know, I'm not trying, I'm not breaking the law. I wasn't on the phone with my wife while I was driving <laughs> because it's not illegal in the South. But uh, anyways, so uh, I was FaceTiming my wife after I put it in park and was completely parked. And I got out, don't judge me, Crossroads Church. And so, and, and so I was on FaceTime as we parked and I was showing, I was showing Sarah the glory of camping world. And I got out of my side of the door, out of the van. And then I'm talking with my wife and all of a sudden I hear the other door open as my dad gets out. And then all I hear is no, 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 no. Second day with a trip across the country with a brand new van in nowhere, Louisiana, and this guy with an $80,000 truck can't back into a spot with sensors all over his truck, and he hits my brand new van, right? <laughs> Can I just tell you on that particular day, I did not act like Pastor Sam, okay? going to tell you, what of all the places? <laughs> Later on, we're like, what do you do for a living? I was like, I don't want to tell you, right? <laughs> He backs in beside the curb, and, and, and my dad, like, almost gets wedged between. We see it on the camera footage. Thank glory to God, there was camera footage of Mr. Johnny. I'm not going to say his last name because it's going to go on the internet. And, and so uh, my dad could have got wedged between the door, and dad just bails on the door because he's going to get caught between the bumper of the truck, and he just wedges the door jam. And we jump out, and now we're having a, conver we're having a conversation, you know? And, uh, and, and I'm literally like, what, what do you do? And he looks at me and goes, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's about to be your fault what's going to happen to you, bro, right? You know? What do you, what do you mean it's not your fault? Let me begin to explain to you the law of the land based on the Constitution of the United States. If you're backing up the entire time, it's your fault, right? I mean, can I get a witness? Amen. God, God bless the USA. It is absolutely your fault. There's a law that says it's your fault. I know that you don't explain it to me, but let me explain it to you. How much of a fault you are at? And he goes, yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> so, okay, well, we'll call the cops. He's like, I'd like to because you're out of control. I was like, okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. We call uh, the cops, which is the parish, and they sent a rent-a-cop in nowhere, Louisiana. And, and I get there, and I go, tell, tell, the, tell them the law. Tell him who is right because we need to know who's right. And I'm convinced that 
I'm right, and he's convinced he's right. But then there's something outside of ourselves that actually gets to determine who is right. And yet for months we had to argue with the insurance and we had to go with these cars and we had to get video and still denying who's right. And now they have to make uh, decisions and judgments to decide who is right. Have you ever, you know, I, I know it's really hard to picture, but have you ever, uh, you know, uh, seen or been a part of people who are on two different t- sides of the spectrum and they're totally convinced who's right? I know it's hard to really picture this, but try to keep up, right? And people are absolutely convinced of their side that they are right. And then there's people on the other side that they are absolutely convinced that they are right. And the question really is, who gets to decide? I know it sounds like a fairy tale world, but picture a place where people are so adamant that what they think is true, right, and just. And then we're all looking for something outside of ourselves, transcendent above ourselves to decide who is right. Or in other words, who is righteous. See, that's a biblical term that we've kind of lost our appetite for. But ultimately, what we're saying in our lives, and we perceive it to be, that there is this thing called right and wrong. That we actually believe that there is righteousness, and then there are things that are unrighteous. And in the South, we say that just ain't right, all right? (laughs) There's some stuff in the world you perceive that, I got some Southerners in here, that's exactly how we say it. (laughs) That ain't right, all right? And yet, what happens is we're trying to find who's, who has some type of position above the other. Who has the moral authority? Who has the high ground? And we're kind of looking and measuring each other up. But then here's what will happen. And maybe if you heard my sermon for the 4th of July when we took a break and, and, and I told you about another confrontation that I had and people were like, when you hear my sermon, you're like, why is the pastor always fighting? You know, right? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I asked myself the same question. And, uh, and yeah, I told this story about going to this bounce house in, in Kentucky and how uh, this, this, the glorious place of the dodgeball arena. You ever been in one of these? And as a, a lifelong youth pastor, the prerequisite for being a youth pastor is you have to make kids cry with a dodgeball, you know, right? And so uh, you weren't listening to my sermon earlier, right? Uh, you're going to listen next time in a day, right? And so uh, I, I have an affinity towards dodgeball. My my seven-year-old had jumped in this, this uh, dodgeball ring, but there was no referee and no one really kind of keeping order and balls are beginning to zip everyone. And at first, like everyone's kind of on the same playing field and, and it's young kids, but then these like 15-year-old man-childs jump in there and they're just starting to do exactly what I would have done at 15. And they're just starting to hay- just throw haymakers at these kids. And I'm watching Judah trying to dodge balls and I'm thinking about an e- ER trip and I don't want to do that. So, so I just kind of casually kind of bounce into the arena and just like, hey, bro, <laughs> right? Like if a ball comes my way, I might throw it, you know? And, uh, and so I kind of jump into the ring a little bit. And, and one guy, you know, he, he's like, all right, I'm going to start going at you, but I get him out. That's right. <laughs> I get him out. And, uh, and yet he doesn't acknowledge that he's out. And so he's kind of arguing with me. I go, hey, dude, just do what's right. 
you're out. And, and now we're arguing about who is right and who gets to decide who's in and out. And so he just completely uh, just ignores me. And then they get me out and I'm like, I'm going to do what they did, right? Uh, and, uh, and no, I, I, I got to swallow my pride and I start walking out because I got out. But then this guy who's a dad jumps into the dodgeball ring. Listen, he was extremely nice for someone with a face tattoo. And, uh, and <laughs> it's just a joke. <laughs> right. Or true. And, uh, and so he jumps into the, the dodgeball and he goes, hey, you want to go at me? And I'm like, I think I do. <laughs> right? Like no one knows me here. And then someone's like, hey, Pastor Sam. I was like, dang it. You know? Right? And, and I, I was like, I, I think I do want to know you. But I'm, like, I don't think we should do this in the bounce house. Let's walk out. Let's have a conversation, man. And here's a dad, because here's what he perceives. He goes, there's a dad in there, and that's not fair. That's not equal. That's not right. He's an oppressor, and my children are being oppressed. But I jump in because his little demons were picking on my kids, right? Like, like, like your, your man child just ran into a man, okay? All right? And so what he's doing is like, I'm a dad, you're a dad. But, but who's going to decide who's right in dad-on-dad dad violence, right? Like, who, who gets to decide, right? Because what we're all looking for is I see and perceive that you are a human being and I'm a human being, and who gets to decide who's right and who's wrong? And so this is where we get to this particular passage. This is where the Pharisees and Sadducees bring this woman, and they're going to decide who gets to decide, Jesus, this whole passage leads up from all of these conversations that Jesus is having with people and he's speaking with authority and he's speaking in a way that other people had not heard before, even to the point where it says that he taught in such a way that they endeavored to arrest him and lay hands on him. And even some people were like, didn't they just say they were going to like take him out? And now that he's here in public and they don't even say a word to him. Like some kind of authority and power that they have that behind closed doors, they're ready to pounce on Jesus. And when they hear him, they're, they're stopped in their tracks. Why is that? I'll deal with that just towards the end. But yet they're looking at Jesus and they go, you look like us. They go, well, you, you're a man like us. Who gives, up, who gives you the right? Just like me and the dad, we're looking, who gets to decide? We look, you're a dad, I'm a dad, and I have tattoos too, bro, right? <laughs> and, and, and I just made, anyways. Uh, and, and so who gets to decide? And yet they look at Jesus and they go, you're just a man. Why do you speak with such authority? You look like us. And Jesus makes this statement just in chapter seven. He says, don't judge by appearances alone. He says, judge with right judgment. He says, I not only, I, I come not on my own authority, although I come from God and sent by the father. What he's essentially saying is I may look like you, but I'm not quite like you. And all the evidence of John is leading us to believe it. he turns water into wine. He walks on water. He feeds 5,000 people out of a lunchable lunchbox, right? He is not like you, friend. Let me make the announcement. If we haven't heard already, Jesus is not like you. And that's good news. Amen? Although the whole point of the scripture is to make you look like him. 
You're not like him. He is different. He's transcendent above. That's his rhetoric. That's his discourse. That's what he's trying to explain to them. That what he's saying is righteous and true and it's different. And his judgment is right. But that's the question we're really asking. And we as believers have to decide who gets to decide what's right. Who gets to decide what is wrong. Is it the scriptures that we, when we look at what the biblical authors, we can look with, with confidence that this is what Jesus actually did? Not subjectively taking what Jesus, uh, what we think Jesus might do, but with confidence we can look into the scriptures and see what Jesus actually did and then follow suit. Amen? Three of you, thank you, amen. Thanks, Dad. And uh, that we can actually look and follow suit. Because if we, if we look at this passage to start, if we're not careful, we'll kind of walk away with some implications that aren't necessarily what the biblical author is leaving for us. I, I remember when I first started preaching through books of the Bible, particularly the Gospels. I had a, a good friend of mine say, Sam, you better have your systematic theology dialed if you're going to preach through the Gospels. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, if, if in academia, we, we have a field of study called systematic theology. And what that is, is my theology, and everyone has a theology. This is a big word for what do you think about God? What do you believe about God? Some people have different ideas about God. Maybe, maybe they're agnostic, and they don't believe there's any proof of God. Or maybe they're atheists, and, and they believe there is no God. That is still a belief, a theology about God. God, or maybe you're a pluralist. Maybe you think that there God, God is in everything and, and there are many gods. Or maybe you're monotheistic, like the Jews, the Muslims, and the Christians. But yet we divide over who this one true God is. And there's different divisions. And ultimately, uh, between Jews and Christians, this idea that Jesus is actually the, uh, the image, the manifestation, the, the embodiment of God in the flesh. And so what you believe about God determines everything about you, whether you believe there's no evidence, whether you believe there is no God, or whether you believe there is this one true God. And if you believe it to be Jesus, it is absolutely important that you know what the whole book that's all about, that you know in every part of it, what is this telling you about the person of Jesus, not just one particular view of it, not just one verse, not the things that I like or that are palatable or one popular favorite verse that you put on your refrigerator magnet or you remember the trapper keeper bibles remember that right some of you don't wait some of you brought one right and I bet on the front of it it's got a bible verse on it and see if we're not careful what we'll do is we'll pick favorite verses rather than looking at the whole counsel of God and asking systematically in every part if I believe something to be true about God does it fit in Genesis does it fit in Exodus does it fit in the Psalms does the Gospels back it up do the epistles begin to explain the theology of what happens in the Gospels it tells me what Jesus is actually doing and, and what he's doing beyond the surface 
And so yet I have to study systematically. That's why we go through books of the Bible so that it's not just one verse that I begin to help you create some type of dogma or doctrine from, but you would have a holistic belief about God and confident that what you read will help you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Are you with me? And so here is the, the things that I have to be careful with is where where do I get the information that helps me interpret this narrative, this story? And yet there are all types of critiques and theories all over the place that are trying to help me navigate the narrative stories that I hear. See, everything is preaching a sermon. And you have to decide whether or not it's true or not. Paul tells Timothy to study to show yourself approved unto God that you could be a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, that you could rightly divide truth. The rightly dividing of truth is every sermon that you've listened to, scrolled past, every talk radio, every podcast, every book that you read. Is this, what is this saying about Jesus? What is it saying about the world? And is it true or not? See, what I look to is the, the sufficiency of Scripture to help interpret for me what Jesus is doing, what he's about, and how I should be doing the work of Jesus that I find in the Scriptures. But see, passages like this can trip us up if we see through an incorrect lens. In the first service, I forgot my glasses again at the first part of service. And someone, um, it was an, uh, uh, an older person, Terry, and and, uh, and, and they, uh, what is it with, with you guys? You think that everyone can share glasses, right? What is, what is it? Like he tries to bring me his glasses. I'm like, man, those aren't going to work, man. Like if I look through your glasses, man, everything will be distorted. Because if you see things through the wrong lens, you may have a distorted view. That's called a worldview how you see the world. So as Christians, we have a biblical, Christ-centered worldview. How we view the world first and foremost, how we view our marriages, how we view parenting, how we view our uh, financial situation, how we view forgiveness and relationships, this all comes through a biblical, Christ-centered worldview, and any other lens will cause a distorted view of the world. Are you with me? There is a lens or a worldview that is being propagated, and we have to deal with this. Many of you have heard of this. This is a worldview that is being taught. There is literature and a canon around it. There are books that are being prescribed, even from Christian uh, pastors and authors, that are beginning to take certain parts of those books that somehow will help me interpret this book. Can I tell you that that, that is the wrong Lens. This, uh, and maybe you've heard of it, it's called critical theory. Uh, many of you may have heard of it as uh, CRT or critical race theory, but it starts from critical theory. What is critical theory? Has anyone been around in the last uh, year and a half? Has anyone ever heard from the, of this or should I just move on? Right? Thank you. And so, yet yeah, there is this worldview called critical theory that basically has two premises. The first premises is that the world can be divided up into two camps, oppressors and the oppressed. 
The second tenet of this belief is that anyone who has power will always become an oppressor. That anyone in authority, anyone of a, 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 a upper class status, anyone who is wealthy, rich, a politician, anyone, that they will always become an oppressor. And then if I'm not careful, through the lens of critical theory, what I will do is look at passages like this, where on the surface I have someone who is oppressed and someone who comes as her Oppressors, Do you see the symmetry here? And so if I'm not careful, if I read through the canon or the lens of critical theory, what I will do is I will project moral superiority on the oppressed. And I will then begin to condemn the oppressors. And I will miss what Jesus is actually doing in the text. Are you with me? See, what happens with critical theory is that if you are top, you somehow have moral blind spots that people who are at the bottom do not have. But who gets to decide who is right? Are you with me? Who is righteous? Who gets to decide? See, we have to have something that's transcendent outside of it. And it goes on deeper than just class, status, race, religion, religion, sexual orientation. All of these things is what we call intersectionality, which is this idea that if you have some type of intersection, that you are a part of more than one oppressed people groups, then you have more and more moral superiority to everyone around you and you you are no longer held accountable for the actions that you do as a sovereign individual. What you do is only a result of what has happened to you. I know it's really hard to picture a world who would think like that, but try to bear with me. The idea that we do not have moral obligations as individuals, but what you'll find in this particular text is Jesus says something revolutionary at the end of the text. And what he shows us, see this idea, this theory is anti-Christ, anti the gospel, because what it does is it says that someone outside or someone beneath actually has the ability to govern and decide what is right and what is wrong. But we're looking at each other going, wait, you're a dad and I'm a dad. And we're in this whole thing together. You're a human being, I'm a human being. But then that's when we start going, but I'm this, I'm that. I identify with this group. So then I have a platform to speak from that you do not. Let me give you some, for some further study. Uh, recently, a, a pastor by the name of uh, Vadi Bachman wrote a book called Fault Lines. And Fault Lines, this is one of the most incredible preachers I've ever heard in my life. He is a black man from inner city Compton who would go on to get his PhD in biblical studies. He would become a missionary to Zambia. And he is one of the most prolific preachers I've ever heard. You should look him up. He recently wrote a book called Fault Lines where he talks about this line of how we see the world through what lens that we are standing on a fault and at one time faults were invisible but when the world begins to shake what you will do is see the grand separation between how we see the world from others 
And so he doesn't write this book to keep this from separation, but in order that we might choose rightly on which side of this great divide we will be on. Are you with me? I found this to be true in my own life. I, I was with a family member in Kentucky recently, and we started at the same Bible college, and, and, and we both have degrees in theology. And, and then over the years of as we would have conversations, now two years removed from seeing each other, we could not even have a normal conversation about God, about life, about church, about politics, without this great divide. I mean, and on the surface, we look the same. I mean, his name's Daniel and mine's Samuel, and we both answer to Mr. Kaiser. He's not going to watch this. And, uh, and yet, what I realized in this conversation is we have no common ground. You're looking at the world through a different set of lenses than I am, friend. You're in a house of mirrors that are obstructed because what you see is that if you are oppressed, if you are poor, if you are marginalized, you are somehow morally superior than anyone else. And the Bible says in Romans 3, it says, there is no one good, no, not one. See, Jesus is far more concerned with what's in your heart than what's in your hand. See, the Bible, see, this is the fundamentally Marxist theology, and Marxism deals with economics because the idea of the rich are inherently evil and the poor are inherently good. And if we just begin to shift the wealth, what you would see is that the world would be good, and this is tried. And what the problem is is that Marx may have an accurate assessment of the problem that people need more things, but what they would realize, he would have an inaccurate assessment of the solution that the heart is deceitful above all things and so I have a heart that's corrupt I look out in the world and I say there's something that just ain't right but then when I look in the mirror I realize there's something ain't right with me friend I realize that the same evil I see in the world the same the same elements that I see is also if I'm honest with myself are inside of me how about you and so this passage helps me deal with well, it's not simply about rich and poor, about the color of my skin, about my sexual orientation, my political persuasions. This is about the condition of the human heart that when compared to the person of Jesus who is impeccable, who is perfect, we will all fall short. See, in this particular story, what you see is something that's absolutely incredible. Jesus bends down at this moment where they're accusing, and they bring in the midst of his teaching. And what they're looking is they're trying to trap him, but they get caught in their own trap. They say, the law of Moses says this woman who's caught in the act of adultery should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus simply bends down in the dirt and begins to write something. Now, I've heard all kinds of fantastic sermons on this passage. Maybe you have. And people say, maybe Jesus wrote the mistress of the one standing there. And people go, oh, oh, mic drop. Can I just tell you that that is not the character of Jesus? You think he would bring up someone who's not even there and accuse her in front of all of them just to prove a point of a burn? That's not how Jesus works. That's how we work. We move to discredit. We ad hominem. We move to look at somebody's character. We begin to point fingers and measure up and go, I'm just a little better than you. Oh, you think you're bad. Let me tell you all your stuff. 
But Jesus is not the accuser of the brethren. He simply writes in the dirt. Now, I can't help but find some type of symbolism here that seems to be consistent. Maybe you remember in in Genesis, God made man from the from the dirt. Adam literally means dirt man. And yet they come and they go, no, no, no. Do you follow the law? What they're trying to get is to figure out if Jesus will be a righteous judge. Because listen, friends, if there is something that's been done wrong, especially if it's been done to you, you hope for someone to come as a judge to set everything just right. You ever looked at the the world and said, somebody needs to fix this. Someone needs to set it just right. But who would call a judge righteous and just if we knew in the back door he was just as corrupt as someone else? See, that's the beauty of our criminal system is we have levels and judges don't just decide on their own. They have a, a jury of their peers, which I just got summoned for. Let's pray I can get out of it right And yet we put accountability in more people. And then as you go up the line, there's more people who make judgment that no one has the judgment on their own. But Jesus is the one who's constantly saying things that he is the righteous and his his judgment is true. Well, why? Why? Why is it that he can write in the dirt? And they quickly go, what is he writing? And I, I I wonder if he wrote Adam. I wonder if he wrote Adam's name in the, in the sand. I don't know what he wrote, but what it did was made them realize that they too are standing there condemned at the judge of the universe. That when they try to say, we have righteous judgment, if they were to judge themselves with the same judgment, if you were to judge yourself with the same judgment that you do your spouse, your neighbor, the person in the other aisle, across the political spectrum, would you hold up to your own standard? We know we won't. We don't keep our own standards. We have different standards for the neighbor's yard than we do for our own. The back bathroom looks much different than the front room, doesn't it, friend? We don't keep our own standards. Only the standards that people can see. And yet Jesus sees all things and knows all things. And he writes in such a way that pierces the heart of those men. And then from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop their stones. Why? Because older people are just wiser. (laughs) That went over better in the first service. (laughs) Like, wait a second. (laughs) Right? Uh, They start dropping the stones. One by one, they leave. Jesus, while they're leaving, writes one more thing. The woman's standing there alone. He stands up and he says, where are your accusers? Is there anyone here who condemns you? She looks around and says this, no. Then he says this, neither do I condemn you. Let's not stop there. Go 
and sin no more. See, this turns critical theory on its head because it does not say because she is oppressed that she is not held accountable for her actions. He does not absolve her of her guilt. What he says is, I will not hold your guilt and your shame against you. See, puffing out your chest and saying, I have done no wrong is different than realizing you're wrong and having mercy and grace given and bestowed upon you that you may go free. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus has the ability to do something here that no one else can. How can he forgive? How can he not condemn? Because he is the one who's been trespassed against. He is the one who says what is right and what is wrong. He is the one who gives the moral authority, has the moral authority and gives the moral code that we all have written on our hearts. Maybe he was writing a new law into the hearts of dirt man. Maybe he's writing something new in us. See, Romans begins to teach me exactly what's happening here. I'm going to quickly read through these as we're closing. Romans 6, Romans 5, that's where I got wrong. You fixed it for me. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin... For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned. The decisions, the wages of sin is death. It reigned from Adam to Moses when they gave the law. Even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift was not like the trespass. For as many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. What he writes is Adam's name, knowing that every sing single person stands condemned and all have sinned. But then one man's act of obedience. See, Jesus lived a perfect life blameless, impeccable life. This is why our systematic theology, when we talk about the virgin birth matters, you may say, well, we're going to take it or leave it. See, here's the idea of the virgin birth is that he was conceived of the spirit, born of the woman, not under the headship of Adam. And so when he says, do not judge by appearances, I may look like a man, but I am not merely a man. You don't know the whole story. So yet he's not trapped in sin, yet in his act of obedience, he lives a selfless, blameless life and gives us a gift. Romans 7 goes on to tell us what we need because here's the reality. We are trapped as if we were in a Tesla in autopilot going off into the abyss and we cannot get out. Here's what Romans 7 says. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Somebody say, oh no. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I'm trapped. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, that is what I keep on doing. Is that anybody else's life? Now, if I do what I do not want, is it no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me? 
See, there's a problem of the condition of the heart. There's a sinful heart that needs to be eradicated. So then how is Jesus going to destroy sin without destroying us when us and sin are so synonymous with one another? So I find it to be law, just like gravity, he says. I can't escape it. I'm in the Tesla on autopilot. So I find it to be law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, raging, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who has the ability to resurrect me and pull the ejection button off of the car that lets me escape the autopilot in my life that points me towards sin. And every time I try to do good, I'm locked in a different way. Just like everyone in the story is locked in, they stand condemned. How can he let us go free? How is it that we can be forgiven? How can he say to her, you are, neither do I condemn you. Look at chapter eight, starting in verse one of Romans. It says this, there is therefore now no, say it with me, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of the life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He looks at the woman, he says, neither do I condemn you. But how, how is it that he can be a righteous judge and not punish the guilty? Because if someone's done something wrong to you, you want them to be punished. How about you? So how is it? You can, you can take that off. How is it? Here's what the Bible tells us. That Jesus, although being fully God and not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he limited himself. What does he mean? He put restraints on what it meant to be God. He took the entirety of the ocean and he poured it into a single glass. That's what it means for Jesus to be fully God. And then he lived a selfless, obedient life. What is this obedience that he did? In his active obedience, what he actually did is he actually kept the law and was actually righteous. Meaning he crossed every T, dotted every I. That's why they came to trap him to say, are you righteous? Are you gonna follow the law? Are you any better? And he actually keeps it. He writes in the dirt in su such a way that it's case closed. The woman is spared and he is still righteous. He did not sin. There was a, a study, a survey showed, and it was a few years ago. So teenagers, now young adult millennials would ask, uh, did they believe that Jesus sinned or did wrong during his earthly ministry? And 45% of the time, people said yes to that. What that means is you don't understand what the gospel is actually trying to tell us. You're seeing through another lens. What we know is that Jesus lived a selfless, obedient life, a perfect, blameless life. Behold the Lamb of God 
who comes to take away the sins of the world. And he actually kept the law and became righteous. Why? So he could actually impute to you actual righteousness. The Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In his active obedience, he kept the law. And in his passive obedience, he accepted He accepts the death that you owe God because of your sin. Because the wages of sin is death. If someone commits a crime, you think there should be punishment. And if you hold others accountable, then you too will be held accountable. But how is it that he can let her go free, the guilty to go free? Because the innocent would stand in the seat of the scorn and the guilty. He would die an innocent man, a criminal's death. And God, because of his obedience, that he became the spotless lamb who took on our death, God the Father gives Jesus a name which is above all names, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the praise of God the Father. Now you and I, although we know we are guilty, have been given a free gift. We don't puff out our chest and go, we're blameless. We go, we're guilty made righteous by the blood of the lamb. And now, no matter our status, no matter our race or our class, we have the responsibility to respond to this free gift and go and sin no more. The question is, will we accept and will we respond? And the response will indicate the value that you have for this gift. Everyone who ever received a good gift responds to it. The question is, when you look at a story like this, do you see it as a way to let yourself off the hook or say that, see, there are oppressors and they're oppressed, or will you see it as a story about Jesus who's able to be the righteous judge and the merciful jury, who can be a just judge And he can still allow those who stand condemned now because of the life of Christ in us has set us free from the law of sin and death. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to think God is out to get you or to condemn you or punish you. Jesus took on your punishment and now he offers a free life for you to live. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've given us an opportunity to see beyond the surface of this text, that you lived an impeccable life. You were born of a virgin, a selfless, blameless life you lived, that no longer we would be under the curse of Adam, but the blessing of Jesus Christ. You imputed to us righteousness and we dumped on you our sinfulness. And you condemned sin in the flesh. You put to death, death on a cross. You absolved us. You make us blameless in your sight. And now we can boldly proclaim. But help us not be people who point our fingers to others. When we too once were dead in our trespasses and sin. Let us not begin to throw stones at the other side. 
Let us not hold people to standards we're not able to keep, but let us follow suit with the command of Jesus no matter our situation. Not let us make excuses that absolve us from our personal responsibility. Let us go and sin no more. Let us stop doing things our way and let's do things God's way because your way is better than our way, Jesus. And we love you and we thank you and let everything we say and everything we do bring glory to God and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?